out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest, or even two. This week it's going to be the turn of the Canadian or female post-punk band from Toronto. It is the one and only Fifth Column. And recently I spoke to two of the members of the band, Caroline Azar and also GB Jones, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. I know, I say that every week. Anyway, look, this is the interview with both of them. Luckily, they're um, both together, so not in separate parts of the country. Um, so this is the, yes, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the formative years. So you're going to find out about everything about the band and much, much more. And it is going to be Caroline that speaks first and GB comes in seconds. But you'll uh, come in second, but you'll get the gist when you hear it. Anyway, Caroline, tell us about your early musical awakening. Well, uh, the first single I bought was Helen Reddy singing I Am Woman that I played on a see and play uh, turntable, which was a toy turntable. Uh, Our parents could not afford a stereo. That was uh, like buying a house back then. Yes. Um, I Then my second single was Candyman, sung by... Uh, glorious cocaine addict Sammy Davis Jr. for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was a favorite movie. So I was very much a child in that way, and I think things got kind of sexy rock and roll pop-wise when I got into the Partridge family. Yes. So I'm I'm a very uh, you know I attend you know intentionally a very uh, sugary um, evasive uh, listener. But luckily, uh, my parents had great musical taste, so that, you know, I was inundated with Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick and Dusty Springfield, and because my parents were also, uh, my my parent, my dad spent time in Istanbul, um, there was a wonderful um, trans singer in the 50s named, uh, who was like the Dusty Springfield of Istanbul. Right. Uh, yeah, and um, trans man, you know, like in the 50s, right? Quite, you know, it was quite wonderful. And, you know, he was the Tennessee Williams, the icon of Bodrin, which is the Key West, the gay part of Turkey. So, um, you know, that these are very Catholic, you know, around about taste. And, of course, Bach and every single Kubrick soundtrack. So, you know, um, I, I came to punk rock um myself just uh haphazardly because i had to dismiss everything else that was untrue so i went from the partridge family to a little bit of progressive rock which i ended up hating and then right to like plastic bertrand and pistols susie and the banshees and so the glam stuff, maybe I would have liked it on AM radio for mm-hmm. sure, like uh, T Rex and and uh, Slade, yeah, stuff like that. And of course, there was a lot of Canadian glam rock as well. So I mean, very, very, very open. So you know that that I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, it's quite a, it's quite yeah. an indeed detailed question. Answer. Did you? I mean, that might have been a bit later. But were people like the the Wilson sisters? Did they come into your consciousness 
at um, sometime in the 70s with, you know, Dreamboat Annie and um, those kind of classic albums. Oh, oh, Heart, Heart. Yes, well, they heart. were, yeah, I mean, Barracuda, all that stuff is like very, you know, right on. Yeah, we, we you know, they were, I mean, Heart and the Runaways and, and uh, you know, Susie Quattro, all that is like essentially exquisite, you know, that without a doubt, yeah. Yes, amazing. Absolutely. And GB, what what was your kind of musical awakening in life? Yeah, I don't know if I had an awakening because um, my uncle was really involved in the music scene in Toronto. So I grew up as a child listening to like folk music because he was involved in the um, folk music scene. Right. And so uh, from a really early age, I was listening to like Pete Seeger songs, Woody Guthrie songs. So um, that's just kind of what I grew up with. And then I guess when I was... um, really young I like you I kind of got involved with the glam scene when I was like 14 so I was kind of like the whole you know um what's that girl's name what's that famous groupie's name oh uh cherry stable star I was kind of living the stable star life oh yes excellent at the same age she was going to like discos all night and stuff. And um, yeah, so then when punk came along, it was just kind of like a continuation of like the kind of music scene I've been involved in. Yes, dear old Cherry. I did an interview with Cherry Vanilla. She now lives in Palm Springs. It was quite an amazing story because she was part of that Tony DeFries world of main man who was kind of um, promoting David Bowie, wasn't she, in the um, kind of early to mid-70s. And um, yes, and then was in a band with members of the police for a very short time, which was incredible. So um, with Sting. So um, there you go. So, yeah, so it was interesting, Caroline, before you mentioned about your parents not having a record player, because actually we were slightly similar. We were sort of from a very working class family. And um, I think my parents, when, when they got married in the the late 70s they were that generation that never borrowed money so they kind of would have sold everything just to make sure they didn't have um any debt and then i think a record player appeared in our house and there was a couple of records to begin with the, the carpenters i remember being one which i was obsessed oh yes absolutely and, yeah. and and the lyrics of that which i always thought if you like the carpenters you're bound to you're bound to like joy division and the smiths later on because it's all about heartache and alienation and depression <laughs> And loneliness all thrown in. But I had a brother who was... David, spot on, spot on analysis, absolutely. (laughs) And then we find out years later that, you know, the medical and uh, socio-psychotrauma that, you know, the genius of of the sister and the brother, my goodness, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's like almost like Greek theater. It's so tragically beautiful. It is tragic. It's so yeah. sad. I know, and she was such an amazing drummer as well, wasn't she? That voice, that sort yeah. of voice. But then yeah. I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and you mentioned the P word, didn't you? Prog rock, because he was very into that, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash world. Did you also yeah. be, find yourself sort of being slightly tempted into the Garden of Eden? I only liked one prog rock record, which I still love, which actually, it's the melodies in it, are actually punk rock melodies, but it's a prog rock group. It's um, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is got to be, uh, it's, it's an opus. Uh, like it's just, 
it, it's well i mean it's orpheus in the underworld so it's it's a uh, very smart um very sexually unmacho i think um unlike a lot of prog rock groups peter gabriel stood out as a more feminine presence which was quite wonderful because one thing we like to acknowledge is bubblegum or very light presented male singing is less threatening to young girls who live in the world of hate and rape. So when music sung by a man wearing a daisy costume uh, is much more safer and appealing than, you know, like, you know, a long-haired, mustachioed, you know, sock-filled frog rock dude. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, well, def- definitely. And it's refle- yeah, and it's reflective in the music. Uh, so I, I think Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is a masterpiece. Yes. I'll have to go yeah. back and have a listen to that with new yeah. new attention. It was one of those albums. I, uh, yes, I, I sort of didn't get into quite as much as some of the other stuff, which is when you're young and you're sneaking into your brother's, you know, room to sort of play his records when you're being forbidden, you you know, you only have a certain amount of time, don't you? And actually the other two albums he had was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and the Beatles' oh, yeah. Sgt. Pepper. But I always thought Elton John also had a an amazing sense of lyrics and melody as well with his um, work with Bernard. Bernard yes. Uh, which was Yeah, did you like them? I loved the movie, by the way, the biopic. Yes. The Elton John biopic. I and I know that the man who produced it is Elton John's husband, who's a Canadian, but I found the Elton John biopic much more queer positive than the Queen biopic. I I found the Queen biopic not that good. Yes. And I'm glad that they got their accolades, but it it it's the the Elton John biopic I think is just magnificent. It's yes just beautiful yeah it's, it's and it's a really and it's a queer film you know like it doesn't shy away whereas i think because the queen guys uh the the straight leftovers the heterosexual leftovers kind of muddled and maybe ridiculed the homosexual aspect of uh freddie mercury's life yes uh, so it's substandard to be frank, yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always good to be on, never to sit on the wall. So when did you start, you, you know, sort of finding your voice and, and finding a mu- When did the musical instrument enter your consciousness? Do you want to answer that, GB? Oh, I started playing piano when I was really young and I was in the choir at church and at school. So um, I was always uh, performing music from uh, the age of five. And uh, I I wanted to learn piano, but my father did not trust me, or he was too cheap, or we didn't have enough money. So I was given a cardboard um, keyboard and to imagine the notes. Blimey! Yeah, and uh, I was kicked out of choir um, because I was too sharp, and. Uh, Really, I wanted to be um, an actor and a director. So when I joined these guys, 
um, and they said, you better take up an instrument. I only joined them because I thought punk rock was amazing and I wanted to have some girlfriends. And uh, that was um, that was the motivation for, you know, to belong to something so that my motivation for learning music was to be part of a community yes. where I could yeah, so that motivated me. And then, um, you know, we we're self-taught, um, pretty much not classically trained. And um, pretty soon when people auditioned, if they were, if they played too well, we knew it would not be a good match because they'd want to upgrade what we were doing musically and we didn't want to upgrade. We wanted to just be in the organic frame of composition, you know. Yes. Did you what, a very, what, very un, a very deliberately undeliberate? <laughs> yes, well, it, it does. Yes, I think that's the joy of punk, really. So, what happened? Did you have that moment where you saw a band or an artist during that sort of yeah. mid seventies period that sort of changed kind of every everything for you, sort of on that on that sort of punk narrative? Mm-hmm. What was it for you, GB? Do you remember what live group? made you go oh wow this is this is it no okay let me think i would say well our parents would take us to the casino so i saw ray charles and the and the rayettes and it was in a room of a hundred people and in those days you could bring your children um because they would serve food and you know, in those days, you could take your kids to a bar where there was smoke and booze and, you know, it was no problem. Uh, so I saw Ray Charles and the Rayettes in Windsor at the casino with my parents. I saw uh, Inglebert Humperdinck, Tom Jones, I think Dionne Warwick and Lola Falana, um, plus all the jazz that they used to play at uh, the Canadian Exhibition, like Artie Shaw was still alive, Benny Goodman. Um, my our, I think, you know, GB's uncle, who was part of the folk scene, he also knew quite a bit about jazz. Yes. And my my dad loved jazz too. So um, I, I would say, uh, you know, I just love David Cassidy so much. And when I saw him, I wanted to be him. And then when I learned about The Doors and Jim Morrison, it dawned on me that, David Cassidy was channeling Jim Morrison and so was Iggy Pop. So I really wanted to be a crooner. Um, I was, you know, I was very interested in being a female version of that, if that makes sense. And so I think that that, that's where I became inspired. Uh, I I would say really, I have to go back to to the Partridge family. Yes, well, absolutely. I do love, I do have an amazing soft spot for a track. I know it's a bit cliche, but Could It Be Forever is still one of the most beautiful, <laughs> traumatic songs of all time, isn't it, really? Could It um, Be Forever. Now, which Partridge Family record was that? Well, it's probably his solo work, actually. I don't know. Did you go into oh, David's right. solo work as well? Oh, well, we love Cherish. We are obsessed with the song Cherish. Cherish. Uh, oh. He did a version of Cherish that was unbelievable. Yes, and I, I just, I just remember. I suppose it was when he'd gone solo and then sort of had, had sort of got some really amazing sort of emotive ballads. I do. Were you obsessed with his kind of image and look as well? 
Yeah, because he looked like a young lesbian. And he was, he looked like, you know, you know, boys who look like girls, girls who look like boys. I think that's the whole attractive, you know, when you're a little girl and, you know, old, ugly adults are oogling you, you start to take refuge and eroticize um, a non-gender specific, you know, uh, appearance. So David Cassidy was not a threat. You know, later on, we found out that, you know, he was a bit of a pig. But um, and I was on many David Cassidy pages on Facebook, except the women are like, you know, nasty housewife harpies, like attacking each other. So I did. I just had to remove myself eventually. But I would say, yeah, the the kind of like non-gender gender. gender. Uh, and in those days, we didn't have words for that. We just would say. Um, he's a pretty boy or he's, you know, or, you know, you look at someone like Joan Jett or Christy McNichol, you know, that kind of like, you know, androgynous girl or boy with a shag. And then, you know, it moves into the Bay City Rollers, which I never cared for. But their look, I think, inspired Malcolm McLaren, um, Vivian Westwood and the Sex Pistols and the Sex Shop. You definitely, like, I don't understand why people don't credit the Bay City Rollers with influencing punk as a look. Yes. Uh, they, they definitely did that. Um, so I think, I don't know if I'm painting, I'm, I'm trying to paint a landscape for you to get the idea. Um, so, yeah. Yes. But, the, but just, so on the David Cassie, I just had a quick look. So the tracks that I really like, How Can I Be Sure and Daydreamer. So they are the two. So oh, I didn't know. yes. How can I be sure? Yes. So that's the one that I love the build up to that, actually. And uh, yes, right. it goes on quite a lot. Yes, I think the the Bay City Rollers is quite interesting because I think their sound really influenced people like the the punk and also the Ramones. So, so it's quite interesting how they um, they were such a bubble, bu uh, sort of bubble gum pop sort of act. But yet their kind of shouty, thumpy sort of songs were just like, then you listen to that and then you listen to the Ramones and you think, oh, actually, there's no difference, is there? So... It's quite interesting, but um, oh yeah, and I yeah. didn't. I did an interview with poor old Les, actually the lead singer, a few times in his later years, and he was such a sad character, and it's such a tragic story what happened to him, and his horrendous manager, which was um, quite oh, brutal. Yeah, yeah, the horrible. That's something all bands have to put up with is like some older asshole, you know, um, just like preying off the young blood. You yes, know. I know. Kim Fowley. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Disgusting character. So you mentioned a lot of those um, people like Dionne Warwick and Ray Charles and sort of jazz people, but um, which are really sophisticated and cool, I have to say. But then how did how did the sort of that, the two, three minute punk um, song come into your consciousness then? Did you, was there mm -hmm. a particular band or an artist that you just went, blimey, that's that's something different? Well, I would say, okay, so you, uh, Clash, Sex Pistols, Elvis Costello, and then it got really exciting when it was, when when um, the Raincoats, Slits, um, the Modettes, um, uh, what else, what else, what else? There were the Modettes, there was Kleenex, there was um, uh, Delta Five, um, Young Marble Giants. That's, at that point, you know, you're, you're, you're going into this like beautiful organic minimalism 
and you know like we're canadians we love we 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 love england you know i mean english punk is beautiful right and then there were some uh, good toronto punk bands too that were great like the poles the b girls um um what else oh bunny and the lakers of course yes. the band that G was in and um so you know it was a great time it was a time of like melodic discernment. It's just, we're so lucky to be here because I think what kids have now, which in a way it's funny when we um, passively aggress towards another generation, whereas that generation is completely happy because they have what they have. But it, it it's so, was so lovely and DIY and to have access and to, you know, um, pauvre, les choses pauvres, like music, to make art and not need a lot of money. Whereas now I think a lot of culture, youth culture, is anchored in in things appearing wealthy. You mm. know what I mean? Or celebrity, musical celebrities have to wear designer clothes, travel, be wealthy, look wealthy, have too much security. So there's the appearance and the moniker of wealth, whereas... We're fortunate to have uh, existed in a time that didn't need those um, capitalist accoutrements that have really nothing to do with art, or they have nothing to do with ideas or Mm. humanity. Uh, So uh, punk is, you know, I mean, it's a resurgence of Baudelaire and and, um, his boyfriend, what was his boyfriend's name? Verlaine, right? you know we're 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 fortunate. We we understand that now. We didn't think so then because it was hard to do anything. Yes. But I think now we have a we have a humbling appreciation for the years um, that we were able to share our youth with with the subculture. Yes. Well, it's also because <clears throat> with the UK, because we're very tiny, aren't we, as a place? I think we what we also had. Um, which goes with the bands that that you mentioned there was we had certain gatekeepers we had sort of three weekly music magazines papers like the enemy sounds melody maker and then there was also a few djs and john peel was the person that would be very good at being on the zeitgeist so i think when he came across those bands like the slits and the marine girls and the rain the rain Oh God! What are they called the um, raincoats. raincoats? The raincoats. I yes. was thinking the rain parade. I was like, no, it wasn't them. Um, and and certain band. He really enjoyed their kind of just enthusiasm. But then being played on Radio One on the BBC meant that they would also get that massive um, kind of exposure at the same time. And then there was these little record labels like Rough Trade who just thought, oh, that's brilliant. You know, that cost you two hundred pound to record that album. Um, we'll just put it out and. There's going to be a there's going to be a little audience because every city and town in the UK would have an alternative sort of punk post punk indie night and and mostly on a Monday Tuesday or Wednesday and there would be at least you know two hundred people would just turn up and so bands got that um, yeah ability to feel like they were progressing at least um, a little bit further than just the single there would be the album and also there was the John Peel sessions that where where people would go and do these. Uh, incredible four-track records in one day with a really good producer at the Maidavel sort of studios. And I think, again, that kind of helped it. But also what you mentioned about capitalism, at that time, 
you know, there was so much unemployment and and we had the benefit yes. systems of that would, you know, you could claim that, you know, dole, you could have housing benefit and the council tax paid. So in a way that gave the freedom to be expressive. And um, obviously for the 70, late 70s and then that indie scene of the 80s, it was just like most bands were just saying, well, we were unemployed. So we just formed a band and, um, you know, just rehearsed a lot in you know basements and and that's i think why there was so much creative you know music at that stage and art as well so um it's interesting yes absolutely absolutely yeah totally the flip flip side to capitalism which is yes it was definitely just jumble cells wasn't it really and um and uh just yeah looking a bit you we was tribal but it was also very much about sort of just getting a, a gear and you know it was like jumble cells there was army and navy stalls there was those kind of looks that people had which weren't from you know new rec uh, new shops new clothes shops it was all sort of make you know men make do and um yes adapt so um it was interesting so look yeah. as- so, so on the punk front um, in Canada, what were there any particular live shows that you went to see that you thought mm, that's that's that is going to be what we're going or I'm going to be doing next? Hmm. Um, well, uh, let's see. By the time I had joined the band, I was going to a place called The Edge, and I saw Lydia lunch with Eight Eyed Spy, and. Uh, and that was kind of, and I saw the slits too. As a matter of fact, uh, the slits playing Toronto was when I was brokered to audition for second unit in the girls' washroom, which second unit became fifth column. Now, uh, GB was not there, but I met, but I saw GB at uh, an experimental film cavern weeks before, and I thought that girl is so exciting. So when I saw her behind the set of drums, I just went, okay, we're going to do great. Like I just, I just took a look at her and she had the mystique and the um, instinct and had the most radical musical ideas um, in the room, which uh, is what magnetized me. Yes. So, you know, really, you know, for me, I don't think, I think what kept me in music and in the band is my friendship and my uh, my regard for GB Jones. Yes, that's, absolutely. It's, if that's not a Mark Twain redux, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. you know, friend, yeah, friendship is uh, and and connecting and finding. You know, discussing sound and you know what sound means. And like sometimes we would sit around and say, "Oh wow!" And we'd play something. And we'd say, "That sounds like a broken washing machine," or "That sounds like an Edward Mybridge." horse in a zoetrope or that sounds like uh pipes breaking in a house that is going cold so you know we were very much on the same page around to create a sound that sounded like life you know it wasn't just music but it's like the textures we were interested in uh we wanted them to be very singular and um and and innate in in expression that they were the soundtracks of our lives at that time which was all about not having money and how do you exist with no money yes so right right that that is always a tricky one so with the with the sort of process of creating your first sort of records did you do a lot of 
was it a lot of kind of rehearsals and and jamming or did did sort of certain members of the band bring ideas that you then sort of adapted to or added to or sort of discussed do you want to answer that oh i think it was both yeah i would say so i mean um the founders who approached me at this slits show once the four of us were together that was janet kathleen gb and myself only after a year one of the founders left so whereas we would influence what was going on but we weren't in a vetoing leadership position and then that fell into our lap pretty quickly and so gb and i pretty soon took the reins around uh you know what things were to sound like and at the same time we were learning our sound learning our instruments learning performance learning confidence learning politics you know it was all we're just like thrown into the wild like there was nothing we made mistakes live and in public it was it was very raw and um that was great for some audience and other audiences were repelled uh by our our expression at that time because um i would say that people didn't catch on to our sound until 25 or 30 years later and my mother told me that she said people are a little freaked out by your sound right now but because it wasn't quite rock and roll um enough but she said you're ahead of your time and uh, people will like it and so there was a bit of a resurgence when after we broke up um people um found uh, the fifth column song very innate and and it influenced other groups and other sounds. So who knew? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because during, yeah. during that kind of period, it was a kind of big shift in the UK. You know, we had 79 Thatcher gets in. Then there's the, the Falkland yeah. War. Then we have this kind of the miners strike, which is kind of horrendous because it's sort of so divisive. And then there's also the Greenham Common uh, with all the the women protesting there, and they sort of built this incredible community at Greenham Common. But we, at the same time, thought we were all going to be nuked off the face of the earth, and it was all going to be a bit Oh, drastic. is that the Greenham Common? Is that where it's the organic food movement? And was that what, is that what that was? No, it was more to do no. with, with the kind of American missiles which had been put in the UK at the Greenham airbase and then there's kind of all the it was kind of uh, women who got together to um, protest and so they sort of camped there and apparently because I've done a few interviews with people who've done books about it there would be d different sort of groups of um, women in different I think they would do in different colors depending on um, what sort of um, social demographic you were or what your sexual orientation was it was very complicated um, but kind of fascinating as well so it was just kind of women it was no men protesting and they they were there but at the same time for for us lefties um, we all thought that you know the, nu the nuclear war was just around the corner at that stage so it did it, I think that had a big effect on quite a lot of people during that time because um, obviously it was quite um, worrying to say the least what was the kind of political and social scene like in Canada at that stage um, well name name a range of years all uh, sort of um, sort of from 80 to 83 what was that like uh, you want to speak to 88 80 to 83 that's 
Can you can you envision that, GB? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I can't really encapsulate it in a in a comment. It, it, it's too wide of category to. So I'm thinking 80 to 83, John Lennon was shot. Uh, interest rates were up. The neocons were just entering power, being Ronald Reagan, Mulroney, Thatcher. Yes. A lot of artists from the UK came to Canada. So we had a lot of like theater actors who came here uh, because the granting system was like just scrapped in the UK and they couldn't make art. So a lot of people came here and Canada being a colony, a cultural colony took very well to uh, British expats coming to Canada. Now, politically, um, I would say it was uh, a horrible time of sexism, homophobia, violence, xenophobia. Um, it was violent. It was violent. If you were a guy who wore eyeliner, watch out. If you were a girl who wore army boots and had dyed hair, watch out. There were less of us in the subculture. So we were attacked more or people would yell at you and say, hey, rock lobster, you know, out of their cars. You know, they could afford to be in cars. We could not. We were on bikes or on foot or on transit. Um, big, big uh, cultural divide. But one thing is, you know, when you have youth, you know, uh, the, I mean, I had three or four jobs. Um, we worked very hard and we played music very hard. And, you know, we drank our coffee and did our Benzedrine and uh, stayed up a lot and wrote lots of songs and played lots of shows and did fanzines. We did lots of fanzines um, and met people who are like-minded, but I would say it was a very, um, uh, it's probably where I developed being agoraphobic because of all the violence out there. Mm. And so you're a young girl, you're thin, you're petite, you're pretty, you wear strange clothes, your hair is dyed, no one else looks like you. There aren't that many punks, I mean, in terms of, um, and so, you know, you know, also, um, you know, you couldn't be really queer and punk back then because the lesbians were into Joan Armitrading and folk songs and wearing Birkenstocks. And so there wasn't, uh, our, our community would have been with like bands who are making like experimental noise, you know, or experimental film or you know, we we were not, uh, I, I don't think we hung out with other girl bands who were really confident and not threatened by us. The first healthy, confident girl bands we hung out with would have been a girl band in Peterborough, which is a suburb out of Toronto. Uh, it's called, a city. It's a city. Yeah, sorry. It's not a suburb. It's a city. But then I guess uh, meeting, you know, Donna Dresch and Tori, uh, but but uh, Toronto was very square, in my yes. opinion, um, because it was very colonialized. And 
it was not, it was too frightened of doing things that were experimental. Or if you did something experimental or radically feminist, you had to be a good looking guy to get away with it. You know, kind of like um, one critic I remember had written about is saying, oh, they just write songs about victims. That was an 80s, some asshole male music critic. And, you know, he wanted to listen to music where women were glorifying womanhood, like Kate Bush or PJ Harvey. And so we were not doing that. And um, he had, you know, he, he made it, it, it was a crusade. And so what, what is my point here? I guess it was very heterosexist back then. Yes, you know? well, it was. Um, it was kind of. It was interesting yeah. because actually, what you were saying, and I'd forgotten this until I did an interview recently, where if you know, like the media would sometimes be threatening a politician, a football player, a pop star, you know, saying we, you know, we know that you're gay, and when when we when we decide to destroy you, we will, and it just hung over them. But you, one forgot that that was often a threat with certain politicians of um, all pop stars. And it was quite a big thing when people like Jimmy Somerville came out on Bronsky Beat and was just very clear about it. And But at the time, you know, it was, for a lot of people, it was like, you know, we like Bronsky Beat. But then a lot of people thought, my God, what's this? You know, he's just openly gay. This is all too difficult we we're not sure if we can compute this at the moment because normally we that's when someone's life is destroyed just be on their sexuality so it's a kind of it's interesting to remember that was only 40 years ago that it was so, so still such a brutal landscape yeah yeah so it was so so i would so hold on a second sorry okay are we making a lot of noise no okay excuse me that's all right Thank you. Yeah. Sure. I'll get it. Bye. What's up? It's okay. Oh, it's okay. Should I continue? Yeah, yeah. So I would say between 80 to 83 was hardcore. And then I, I remember 84, Reagan was in power, and then we had hardcore punk, like Black Flag or the Meat Puppets. And you know, the Beastie Boys, and then at the other end of the spectrum, Madonna, Lionel Richie, George Michael. So there became a great divide. And I guess because of the economy, um, punks needed to make money. And so they needed to do better produced product and stuff like that. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, we're really run by, you know... Uh, I, I like that that you have stated that punk is a product of Thatcherism, definitely, without a doubt. Um, all cultural expressions are a reaction to um, socio-political um, violence and compromised economies. So you know when when COVID happened, people were like, "Uh oh!" But some people made great art during COVID. So it depends how you use the pain or the tragedy. Yes. And uh, yeah, um, that's that's the uh, internal locus of control, I suppose. <laughs> yes, this is it. I think the, mm -hmm. the reaction to capitalism is quite an interesting one. And I think that's what made this this kind of period that I'm, I'm particularly fond of quite, quite fascinating. Yeah. There's, there's kind of quite a lot of layers as you dig down. So, so with with the band, 
after experimenting, you went into the studio. Well, the first album, this is the one to serve with hate, isn't it? That was the first album, but we did do um, tapes beforehand. We did the Urban Scorch. We did the Hyde cassettes and we did an EP um, entitled Fifth Column. So there were about three products before the first album being to serve with hate. Yes. Yes. And and did you enjoy going into the studio? Was that generally a good experience? No, it was horrible Uh, because we were still figuring out stuff. I mean, um, I... um, I think um, I would have enjoyed it more if we did not have the traditional father figure engineer producer lording over of you should do this, you should do that. That was a drag. And we did not know how to navigate it because we, you know, in order to, to get a record, one has to cross the bridge. You have to shake hands with the devil or the troll or what have you. But it was, uh, we were definitely, I wouldn't say it's a Svengali, an old Svengali's fault behind the control board. I think it's also uh, us knowing ourselves better. Um, So we had to really learn wildly and strangely in public, like it's just being thrown into the fire. So as time went on, I mean, recently GB and I have been uh, fixing to serve with hate. We're doing a uh, 40-year release of its original date, um, and we've been re, you know, remastering it and fixing it. And it feels like, you know, as time passes, it's much better because you know yourself. You're older. You have nothing to apologize for, and you know, you give zero fucks, as they would say. Yes. So, yeah. So initially, it was awkward, but the, you know, what it is, the more you do it, the more it becomes commonplace. <laughs> yes. And did you, I mean, there was a character on it, um, and he mm-hmm. might, you might have forgot him, but John Porter, because I'd done an interview with John Porter. Was that a producer or was that another John Porter that was on? Oh, a- that's another, yeah. The John Porter you're referring to is the producer who worked with the Smiths, right? Yes. Yes. Our John Porter is a super eight experimental artist who made films for every song we did film loops with him which is is kind of an amazing thing that we came up with as an invention we called it moving wallpaper and we met him at the funnel experimental Th- film theater in toronto which was one of the most incredible creative places for all media it's not there anymore and one of the founders recently passed being ross mclaren who um, taught at fordham and Cooper Union in New York taught experimental film, and he was the nephew of the great experimental animator Norman McLaren. So this is Canadian film board history, like really hardcore stuff. So we were fortunate to meet John at a at a benefit for the Funnel Experimental Film Lab, and that would have been, I guess, what was it, in eighty one or eighty that we met John at the Funnel. 81. 81. Yeah. So that's who John Porter is. So sometimes we took him on tour. Right. And and we would dress all in white and we would play the film loops to go with the odd with the live songs. 
and it had a very um it was a very transitory multimedia experience. It was quite brilliant. We were doing the opposite of what the Velvet Underground would have done um, with Andy in regards to the inevitable, the plastic inevitable, I believe it was called. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so we were doing black and white film loops over us wearing white. And the loops were if when you played them against the song, there would be a synthesis between the live herky-jerky raw music performed and the loop. So it depended where the loop fell. It was a very transitory experience. Amazing. And just 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 fantastic, yeah. Yes. And, and I... very singular, too. We were, we were definitely, we always said, you know, we know what our references are, but let's not mimic it. Let's put it through our own machine, our own subconscious, and reinvent it as a pure expression of our own. And was that one of the things that you started making video and film with for certain songs from the album? Did you was that an ex, sort of something that you had control on, or did you were you being directed on that that front? Well, it depends on the video. But let me hand G GB. Do you want to talk about the videos? No, not really. Say. Okay, well, I think there is, but that's okay. All right, all right. You go ahead. She's she's pushing it to me. So I think the first. What was the first video we did was Where Are They Now, yeah. with Mark Daguerre. So we there was a painter who had this really great band with John Brown, called Rong Rong. They were just fantastic, and and. They never, they had, I think they just had cassette tapes, but they were one of the best bands. If you were to imagine in 1982 to hear a group that sounded like a little bit of Dwayne Eddy, Husker Du and Sonic Youth, you would have had Wrong Wrong. These guys were incredible artists. So Mark, one of the guitar players, um, directed Where Are They Now, which is off to serve with hate. And it's... Um, and he did a very textural video that was quite dramatic. And at that particular time, David, when girls in band did videos, they usually were cute, bopping up and down, um, reaching out to you, reaching out to the camera. We were doing the opposite. Which was don't look at me. Um, you know, it was it, it was almost like um, I think uh, like he we'd be playing and he'd be projecting paintings of Jean Paul Marat being murdered, you know, um, in his bathtub, like just very weird obsequious combinations. So you know, very dour, very dramatic, maybe a little influenced by Joy Division in that regard, right? Um, but still different. So that would have been our first foray. By the time you saw Donna, which would have been a shot in 92 or 93 with K Records off the 36C record, now we're dealing with, um, you know, a Batman-esque pop culture of girls in jails, uh, influenced by the drawings of G.B. Jones, of her Tom Girl drawings. So the, there's, I think, a little bit of a range of mood and expression um like this is footage from um bruce LaBruce's um archive uh which we spent weeks and weeks and weeks cutting 
Um, so they're all a little different, I would say. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, we, we would have a very, um, on the videos, we'd have a pretty clear relationship, like either one of us would write it or conceive it, and then we'd work with the director. So they were all, they were, they were all very conducive, cooperative, um, uh, productions, I guess. Yes, absolutely, yeah. and, the, and 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 creating quite a in, interesting sort of sonic quality at the moment as a band. You know, it's very atmospheric, isn't it? And um, kind of quite intriguing. Thank, thank you for saying that. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's that's quite, the intention. That one, yes, and 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 at that time, you know, being an indie kid, you know, we all loved those kind of. In interest and in, in experimental sounds. Did you? Were you? I mean, you said you're remixing the album, but generally, were you quite pleased with it, or did it did it sort of leave members of the band feeling a little bit flat? To stir with hate. Have you heard to stir with hate? Bits of it. it. Yes, just yes. Uh, you know, just the old track. Mm -hmm. uh it's a piece of shit. And so we're just um, doing it better now. So the the um, the redux of it, it, it's I feel that that record sounds like someone strangled the record with a pillowcase over it. Um, no one's fault, you know. We were with a producer who I think we were his second or third project. He was very young, like us, very kind. Um, but just there wasn't that there wasn't that goal, that understanding, that value. So um, as we're doing it now, there's more of an understanding of what it is. So it's quite ex now the product is wonderfully explosive. Yes. Um, um, I wish I can play you a track, but um, but we, you know, we're still uh, finishing final touches on it. Uh, but the original record, I think it's, I think it's weird that it, it got a Polaris heritage thing and it's got a little bit of a cult status, but that's why we wanted to fix it because it's actually, they're very good compositions, but they're poorly produced. And again, no, no resentment, no one's fault. It was what it was. It's okay. Move on. We're just fixing it and we're going to have a better product for, you know, uh, fifth column enthusiasts. Yes, well, it's it's good to do the archives, and um, I must admit, yeah. it's it's never it's it's um it's just been a glorious period, actually. That I don't know if you saw it recently, but there was a film that came out from a badder band who was only about for around for eight months called Rima Rima that um, featured quite an interesting lineup of people. Called, uh, the woman on drums was Mar Dorothy Max Pryor. She's just brought her book out, and it also featured a young Marco Peroni who went into Adamant. But again, right. they okay. then he released one EP and wow. and then, you know, it just became this cult status. And, you know, someone managed to make a film from it. So I do I do think it's valuable to um make sure these things are all beautifully archived and um yes, yes, saved really. That's the main thing, isn't it? Because it's kind of an important stepping stone. And obviously your band is very important. So once once that album was out and about, you promoted it and played live shows. Did you then feel keen to do a second album? How, how was the dynamic within the band at that stage? Um, well, you know, 
uh, GB and I are, were the the leaders, but sometimes we wouldn't take leadership. So I think sometimes we can, you know, and it's youth and no training, and you know, we just. Uh, um, I, I think we frustrated some members, and a lot of members in in their in their. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, hold on a second. How do you spell your last? It's E A S T A U G H. Okay. There, there, you got it. It's right there, right there, GB. We're just looking you up on Facebook. Okay, so GB's looking you up. I know you're my friend. Right. And so, right, right, right. There we okay. go. You've got great pictures there. Um, so I oh, think, I think, you know, David Steinberg? Um, I might do. I'm not sure. Are you looking at all those? Moon, Moon Trent, Rachel Carnes, Andy Schwartz. Edward Stapleton. Edward Stapleton. Yes, I've, um, yes, I've done, well, I've done, I've done a lot of interviews. Yes. Oh, and there's the picture with you. You're wearing a red and purple outfit. Am I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, so I think a lot. Some members wanted to make us a commercial pop outfit, and we did not want that. Or if we did do it, we wanted to do it on our terms. So we did frustrate many members. Um, but I think what we rejected was good because we have something more singular, uh, audio wise and lyric wise. And you know, I remember. Um, so after the first record, yeah, we we were just interested in doing a second record. And uh, before the third record, GB walked in one day to rehearsal and said, we are going to write a song called All Women Are Bitches Repeat. And she was referring to a um, uh, a Canadian underground uh, horror movie, a very low-budget, trashy movie from the 70s called right. Kathy's Curse. And um, so we started to jam the song. And I remember there was one member who really wanted us to be more commercial, more sophisticated. And that was the day that person left. And it was good they left because it wasn't, um, you know, I mean, being in a band is like being in a marriage, right? I mean, you or in a relationship, you you join up. It's quite exciting at the beginning. And then they grow and you grow. And you may not grow in the same way. So, you know, um, when people left, like we never fired anyone. But I will tell you, when people left, we were pleased. They 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 did the breaking up for us, if that makes sense. Yes. And it was mostly because of aesthetics and musical tastes and and musical styles were just no longer colliding. Um, and they needed to leave and go on their own, and we needed to have them leave. So um, they did the work for us, um, yes. which is which is very cowardly uh, when I think about it, um, at least from my vantage point. But I'm not going to uh, virtue signal and say I'm a good person all the time. Um, you know, very, very immature uh, to some degree, but there it is. Uh, there it is. <laughs> yes, we have to embrace 
all these facets of ourselves, really. It's important. So so on the second album, what was the dynamic like as you went into the recording studio? Had you sort of got all the material written and rehearsed at that stage? Well, usually we would just write and write and write and uh, repeat and repeat and practice like repetition, like crazy yogic, you know, like it just, we would play them repeatedly until they were in our skin bones. And um, it was always great to, it's always great to record a record after you've toured because then the music is in your blood from repetition. Yes. Um, So, yeah, I just think we became more um, confident in time. Um, can you can you rephrase the question? I'm sorry. Yes, I was wondering about that the dynamic of the band before you do mm-hmm. were going into the studio to do the second album and having right. the material kind of written and kind of rehearsed so that you had a particular mm-hmm. kind of energy and the spirit that um, went with you towards that kind of session. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, and and some people didn't understand what we were playing. Like we have a song called "Fair Humor Story," and um, um, I I have that record too. We're looking at your sound showcase of the Cult in the Fall. We have that record too. It's hilarious. Okay, um, uh, I I think some of the content, you know, it's funny when people are in your band and they enjoy playing and. They enjoy the mystique around you, but they want it to be something more commercial and they don't understand why you have to um, write a song with queer content. Uh, The Fairview Mall was written um, about an incident that happened in St. Catharines, which is a small town out of Toronto. Um, And uh, some uh, reputable men fathers were caught in the washroom at the mall diddling each other, having a good time. And they were surveyed, they were caught, they were uh, reprimanded, and they were publicly humiliated. And one of them, uh, I think, was a football coach, a married football coach, uh, took his life. So that is the ultimate closet song, you know. And so we, that was... You know, that was a very brave thing for us to do. People either really loved it or they really hated it. And sometimes you had band members who were um, very straight and they didn't dig it, you know. And so going into the studio, they would enjoy playing. They would like the opportunity and, you know, they didn't have to pay for it. We would, you know, um, budget it from shows and... um, you know, uh, back then it was prestigious to play in a band, so everyone had part-time jobs. But being in the band, I guess, gave you social uh, credence. Yes. So people would say, well, I don't like the song, but people tend to like you or they like the song, so I'll play along. So, you know, you could really distinguish members who are really into it um, and distinguish members who are not into it. And so sometimes, you know, um, I mean, we had pretty, uh, I would say by the second and third record, we had more of a handle on production. And so we could describe what we wanted more. 
so we just got better at it and got better at, you know, demanding certain things. But, you know, I would say the only record that doesn't need to be remixed is probably the one we did called 36C. That one is, that one's a pretty good record. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Because Melody Maker, did they vote sing, as, as single of the week? All, whip, oh, yeah. all, all women are bitches by ever ever true. Did um were, were you getting quite a lot of traction in the UK at this stage? Yes, we were, and we were um, invited to. I think we were supposed to arrive in Frankfurt, and uh, there was a van waiting for us, and we were supposed to tour Europe, but it didn't work out. Oh my God! Did you ever yeah. did you ever play live in the UK? That would have been a dream come true. No, we did not. It would. Have, it's. It was a dream. I. I always wanted to play London and Barcelona. That was my dream. Yes. Oh God, that was um very because on K Records, this was with um our famous chap, isn't it? Really, K. And now I can't remember. Forget his name. Um. God, who runs? Oh, uh, Calvin, who runs? Calvin Johnson. Yes. was that being on that label was that good generally quite good for the band i would say so i mean um you know more people heard us they had you know pretty good distribution uh when we played with with american bands like um uh bikini kill or bratmobile or in your case we played with huggy bear out of london uh or the uk in new york that was one of my favorite shows ever. Um, you know, I think we had finally met our matches. These were really outstanding performers and outstanding writers. And they all had singular ideas about, you know, uh, political and sexual freedom and thought freedom. And that was exciting. That was probably the highlight of, uh, for me at least, um, is you know, kind of, you know, playing with our American and British friends. It was wonderful. Yes, because you'd seen a lot of musical changes in that period from the the mid to late 70s right through to that early 90s. I mean, for yeah. me, obviously, there was the, the indie pop world that was so much about it was the Smiths, I know I have to say that, um, 83 to 87. But then there was the sort of the time of there was ecstasy that came along after that towards the late 80s and there was that dance movement and then we had the Seattle grunge scene that started to come as well. Yeah, I mean, did, right. and then you had, you know, bands, you mentioned Huggy Bear and Bikini Kill. There was also people like, um, I don't know, My Bloody Valentine and all those oh, kind of... fantastic. Those kind Absolutely. of sounds. Yeah. How was that kind of also influence you influencing your kind of kind of creative um, position and and sort of feeling about making music? Well, uh, I had a Casio and I had an old Italian organ called an Elka, and so we were trying to create the Leslie sound. GB was. Uh, an incredible drummer uh, playing with Tom Toms and had her own sound. And then she moved that kind of rhythmic drumming power into guitar playing because we really, I really wanted her up front. And I feel that when she's a beautiful drummer, but I just, her presence was so magnificent. And, you know, uh, uh, performers or singers are actors in, in a sense. And I just, what 
the best performing you could do is if you perform with someone who is as real and committed. So I was excited when she took her rhythmic power away from the drum kit up front and, and really played her guitar like a drum kit uh, in, in, on her terms. So, you know, it was, it was just so uh, our influences. Well, you know, we, we, we were very influenced by um, paintings like Goya mm-hmm. and uh, Velazquez. You know the, the 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 punk violent tragedy of existence as uh, painted by you know these masters um, recording different wars, whether it's man versus man, man versus nature, nature, you know what have you. I think that's where our influence lies. So, you know, um, Kangaroo Court is very much like um, a conquistador calling. Uh, the Fairview Mall story is influenced by Spike Jones, the you know ragtime, mm. you know experimental comedy musician. Um, some of our stuff is influenced by the Carter family, uh, you know, uh, bluegrass in the mountains. So, um, you know, the British sound is fantastic, but I think when we were forging things, we were going deep into our own psyches, like we'd never say oh, that's a classics nouveau line. Or if by accident we played something that did sound popular, we would ditch it and then go back and try and reinvent something. So, you know, uh, we we like to mimic the sounds of, a, of an aspirin commercial mm. or from the 70s, like an Excedrin commercial, like where the, the sound you're creating sounds like a headache that's coming on or a washing machine that's breaking down. So... You know, we called it the sound of music falling apart. So it, there's entropy, there's Samuel Beckett, there's, um, you know, um, just different expressions. Uh, it's that horror movie, Carnival of Souls. Yeah. So I think those would be our influences, our external things, as opposed to other musicians. Um, if that if that answers your question. Yes. No, I, I, I sort of... I sort of feel like David Bowie. I I sort of went to one of these exhibitions where he was his he he'd sort of I, it was Sotheby's actually. This was where he'd sort of collected a lot of art, and obviously he was very fascinated with paintings uh-huh. and as well as a lot of other things that sort of fed into his music as well. And it was kind of interesting seeing what he was intrigued by being a David Bowie fan myself. So right, um, right, yes. and you're, I'm going to interject here. You're cooking with gas because he invested most of his money and pay had the world pay attention to a part of his art collection of degenerate art made under the third Reich. So, you know, um, Oh God. Like, um, Hannah Hock or, um, I mean, the, the, I think the Banshees used some of the degenerate art for one of their singles, but that that's um you know all the artists who had to um who either uh were were jewish or you know had um jewish gallerists or they were making art that questioned um you know the political violence at that time being the third reich i think it's incredible that he brought he he paid 
much attention to degenerate art. Um, so yeah, art can painting makes you can move you to make a sound, or perhaps uh, a painter is going to paint better listening to a particular piece of music. So it's very interactive. Yes, and. And and it really solidifies the mediums um, feeding off each other. Yeah, and also there's a there's a very interesting period, wasn't there? The the Weimar Republic, the kind of twenties and thirties in right. Berlin, which again, right. you know, a lot of that music was so dark and unsettling. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of fascinating. I went to see it was Barry Humphreys and also a band called Meow Meow performing the work of the Weimar Republic a few years ago. That was kind of a mesmerizing show because again it's just interesting different decades and different periods have such kind of a kind of quality and energy which you know it's hard to imagine what it's like but at the same time it's interesting to try to um um, yes picture oneself in those positions and places yeah and And, you know we have i i should hand the the phone over to gb because you know she's you know, a, a world-renowned artist. Her work, her work is shown um, the world over, and you know she gravitates between doing work, showing work, making music, you know, making films. Um, you know, she is. Uh, you know, it's it's the dream. It's it's the life that is meant to be lived. Is you know, with all these things. Let me just hand that to you. Do you want to talk about your art? In that regard. Oh, what's the question? The, your your art, artistic kind of um, well, I was going to yes, kind of curious. What where where did the you know your art sort of then sort of fit into the rest of your life? Um, oh, that's a good question. Well, it, it's really kind of integrated into the whole. Um, into all of my activities, I would say, because when I went to art college, I started out studying things like um, photocopy art. So then when I joined the band and Caroline and her friend Candy were doing a zine called uh, Hide. So I started working on that with them. And then, you know, we were working with photocopy art, basically making this, this band scene. And, um, then we started putting out uh, cassette tapes along with the fanzine. So really, um, we could marry the different types of technology, photocopying, cassette tapes, which were people were really using to um, circumvent the whole um, structure, music structure that was in place then so that you wouldn't have to be signed to a label to get your music to a radio station and you wouldn't have to like you know have a a gallery to be able to show your photos or your artwork you could just um distribute your ideas via these little photocopied booklets and these little cassette tapes so um so it, it's art on a really practical level. It help. It, it's uh, art that helps you. Um, I would say navigate through the culture, but also create the culture at the same time. And um, not you don't need a lot of money to do it. So that no. was perfect for us. 
So, so were you quite influenced by people like Jamie Reed? I was just, I was just handed. Look, I just got his book recently, which was this one about his kind of a lot of his photocopied uh, work, which he'd sort of got done during that period. Did did um did his kind of seeing his work did that have an influence on you, or was it other people that you were influenced by, or you? I just wondered how that worked. Yeah, I loved Jamie Reed's work. And actually, I was in a show in Montreal with him. And I was real I was so excited to see his work in person and be able to be in a show with him was like a dream come true. Uh, I think his work is absolutely amazing. And um, I was also influenced by a lot of uh, Canadian photocopy artists at that time, like Barbara Asman and, and Flavio Belli. And... Um, other people that were working with uh, photocopiers as an art tool at that time. Um, Jamie Reed was also like kind of like my introduction to like um, the Situationists, and I started reading all of their books and everything and um, exploring their uh, philosophies. Uh, so he was really an important figure, I think, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And did you, when the... Because the band's the band's third album came out in was it sort of ninety four at that stage? Yes, ninety four. When that when the band did the band finish at that on the third album was that the kind of the end of the band at that stage? Not right away. We did a couple more things. We had actually some songs written and stuff, but. Uh, uh, we only put out one song on a um, Kill Rock Stars compilation called Detox Killer, erotic thriller. That was a post. That was and then a, there was Imbecile. Oh yeah, and there was Imbecile. There was a few. We did re actually record a few other songs after that album, but they we just never kind of made it to the studio to do another album. But we have so much material that has not been released. We in between our first EP and our first album, we have like at least an entire album's worth of material that we recorded that um, never got put out, so, um, unfortunately. Yes. And uh, in between Pisser with Hate and um, All Time Queen of the World, we recorded a cassette album that was a soundtrack for um, a video by Paulette Phillips and Jeffrey Shea. And that was our first soundtrack that we did. So that was like a, another album that most people didn't hear because it was a cassette-only release that hopefully someday we'll be able to put out on what technology is popular now. It's not <laughs> CD anymore. I no. don't even know. <laughs> it's, um, yes. Well, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to do to get that all sort of nicely sorted and archived and uh, available for us all to hear. I mean, then as the 90s progressed and and the sort of cultural and political landscape changes, how did your sort of artistic life um, develop from there? Was it, was it Were you then sort of doing more film and more art and um, put them, you know, the music went to one side? Uh, no, I'd always been doing films since um, 1977. I think I started filming my first film 
before I was even in the band. So uh, what happened was I got um, picked up by a gallery in New York called Feature Gallery, and I started having a lot of demands on my time for doing drawings because uh, I had a really, I was with, um, Hudson was running Feature Gallery, and he's a, a really brilliant gallerist who who was showing my work all across Europe and the States and Japan. And so uh, he just kept phoning me up saying, we need more drawings, we need more drawings. And I, I would be spending all my time sitting at the kitchen table drawing night and day. And it took a lot of time away from that I uh, had previously been able to devote to the band that I had to really concentrate on getting drawings done. So that I think that was that was a big part of why things started. Um, people were kind of moving in different directions, and I, I obviously needed to, you know, really apply myself to that. Yes, I could see there was. Um, so, do you use? Was it? Because it's quite expressive. I, I'm just looking at these pictures called Crash. And um, so th are these kind of, was this typical of the art that you had been doing or was your style changing much? Oh, yeah. Crash was a whole series I did of Crash Cars. Um, I do different series and uh, that was one of them. Most of those have been stolen, fortunately. But um, unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, uh, now I'm working on a series of witches that is going to come out in a book, hopefully next year. And um, what else am I working? I'm working on a series of candy drawings, and um, I guess that's it. I always have a series. I always try to think of something to do. <laughs> yes. But your work has been seen and shown all over the world, hasn't it? So it's it's been a very, uh, yes, busy kind of last sort of 30, 40 years of sort of focusing on, on your art, hasn't it? Yes. Um, we've been, well, Caroline and I have done a lot of things together during that time as well. We did an installation for um, the theater center that was kind of like a performance art, music, theater production. Nuit Blanche. Yeah, uh, for an event in Toronto called Nuit Blanche. I don't know if we, if you have that in the, in the UK, but, uh, and then um, Carolyn does a lot. A lot of theater work. She does a lot of plays, writing, directing, uh, some performing, occasionally um, voiceovers. Um, and uh, she wrote a play for a band I was in called Opera Arcana that played at a, a, a venue here in Toronto called Video Fags. It's now closed, unfortunately, but that was a run by Jordan Tannehill and William Ellis. It was a really amazing space that had just incredible work being shown all the time. And uh, so we did a really amazing play that ran for like three nights, I think. What was that called? Yeah, what was that called? It was called... Um, I can't even remember. It was called uh, <laughs> The Spirits of Southern Ontario. Is that it? I the don't spirits think of so. It was it was um like 
it was about it was um southern ontario gothic right so yeah and and so it was influenced by you know early margaret atwood like you know poetry written by women in the 1800s out in the canadian wilds and you know um the mythos of hex signs on farms on barns so it was a very uh, earthy magical um performance and they had these amazing songs and so i create i i wrote a play based on gb and minus the other artist they were in trance i put them in a transitory state and asked them questions and the questions they answered became the characters they played and then i created a performance out of these characters so gb was a um uh a 10 million year old tree called the Yuanamai. And uh, so they were all different elements, like, you know, witches' elements, like fire, water, earth, uh, metal, you know. And uh, so we put this performance together and we just asked that it was free because at this time it was so expensive to live in Toronto. Mm. We just thought it was a tiny storefront. We said, you know what? We want to do this performance free for artists who want to come out and just come to a party. So we did not charge money. Um, and that's when Toronto was becoming a world-class city and it was too expensive to go out. So Video Fag was in the center of Kensington Market, which would have been one of the earliest Jewish markets at the turn of the century uh, in Toronto. And then it became an Asian market near, uh, you know, the diaspora of uh, of of you know, Cartiers and cities changing. It became um, akin with Char- uh, Chinatown. Yeah, the name, it, it was called The Bruised Spirits of Southern Ontario. That's it, The Bruised right. Spirits. And so it was a multimedia performance, and they were quite wonderful. Uh, they were quite wonderful. It was Their music was quite inspiring. It was, like, very gothic, um, you know, witches' music, influenced by Black Christmas influenced by um um uh what's that jonathan frid show called dark shadows Shadows. you know 70s horror um but very mythic very gothic very elegant very restrained very different from fifth column so very repressive repressed like repressed lust and repressed sex and you know everything was about shame you know the shame of history (laughs) Yes. <laughs> we're like you know it's time for us to get back into the closet you know like keep it all in there <laughs> so you know we it was almost like doing this like historical drag and we had a lot of fun doing it it was great i mean i had a, I had a great time and it was wonderful for me to direct gb and not be in the band uh but you know kind of to you know create the concept with them it was very exciting Yes, um, it sounds amazing. But, um, yeah, mm-hmm. and did were you in, did you do an album called Zap the Universe? Was that you? Or was that another band? No, nope. that wasn't yours. No, I just I, I just Zap the Universe. Oh, I think it was Pocaholics who did that, wasn't it? Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I was just looking at your discography. That's all, and um, it was kind of credited under your name, and I thought, well, was that 
one of your maybe, maybe we appeared as we did backup vocals. No, because David was in Pocaholics. Oh, was in right. So the Pocaholics drummer was with us for about a year. Right. Um, so that's how it um, yeah. came yeah. along. Yeah. So when yeah. So after you brought out your last album, Thirty Six C, which was on yeah. K Records, you said you were pleased with that. Did you then also yeah. tour that around? Um, you know. Sort of, yes. Um... yes, yes, we did. We that's when we played with Huggy Bear, and uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. It was a you know, and we had two Americans in the band, Donna Dresch from Team Dresch and uh, Dinosaur, and Tori Colicchio from uh, Kickstand. So we had you know, an Olympia, a Washington member and a New York member. And, you know, they really wanted us to move to the States and leave Canada. And that would have been, that would have been fun. Uh, but we didn't, we were very used to our, uh, social democracy here in the structure. So easier said than done. Yes. Uh, but, you know, GB became, as she told you, became more involved in her drawing. And I was working for the Playwright Laureate of Canada and, you know, as an assistant director, a directorial assistant. And then pretty soon I was writing um, comedic plays. And I wrote a little musical called Manorexic, which is uh, a female version of King Kong. You could call it Queen Kong. Right. Yeah. And uh, did some songs on that that I wrote um i had some ideas for some melodies and uh wrote them with gb and beverly and also joel gibb from the hidden cameras they uh joined in on uh constructing those songs have never been released but they're very poppy and very fun and very romantic and very silly that was my stab at trying to do like a, a doris day meets animal farm romantic comedy where uh, people end up with the worst case scenario or, or the oddest case scenario. So it's like Midsummer's Night Dream come to life where it's not a dream. You actually do end up with the donkey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was a lot of fun. And then, yeah, I just, I mostly now I dramaturge, you know, we get together, we do music stuff and fix our music. But on my own, I work with playwrights. Um, I'm partial to uh playwrights who have um are interested in you know radical humorous honest romantic sexual lustful aggressive you know provocative material um if 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 someone approaches me i i'm a pretty good editor but someone approaches me and and the stuff is so immaterially boring and middle of the road if I have time, I'll do it, but they'll have to pay a lot. So the more radical you are, mm. uh, I will charge you less. You see what I mean? Like the currency of experimentation means a lot to me as a process, uh, whether it's music or narrative or, you know, visual art. I just say, you know, the more radical you are, the less you have to pay me. But if you're doing something, you know, very middle of the road, you're going to have to pay me a lot because it's torturous for me to help you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what a, oh, it's a, it's a nice way to put it, actually. That's a good, that's yeah. a good it keeps it yeah. simple, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say the film came out of the, the band. Was this about 10, 12 years ago? This, this project happened. 
Yeah, we're not going to talk about that because they owe us a bit of money. So uh, we'll we'll promote that when they pay us our money. So next next question. <laughs> yes, no, that's absolutely that's fine. Um, <laughs> no, I just you know, just it was there. So then, of course, the, of course. So so as we were trundling through this kind of um, well, the past decade from yeah. fifteen sixteen onwards to this. So were you just working in theatre at this point? And um, yes. Absolutely. Yep. I was doing about two plays a year, either assisting someone or, you know, um, people. I, I I, mean, one of my favorite experiences was this very sweet kindergarten teacher uh, approached me after I had done a murderous, violent play that was pre-Me Too, but it was all about Me Too. And it was called Dink, Double Income, No Kids. And uh, it was based on a... Um, a Canadian corporal in the Canadian Armed Forces who used his leadership to stalk, rape, maim, murder women in his community and women in the Armed Forces. And I wrote a play from his wife's point of view, or that was the attempt, and there were some songs. And it got, you know, it got it got national attention. It was, you know, it was very provocative. But what was interesting to me is that adversely, a woman approached me who was the sweetest kindergarten teacher. She was something out of a Beatrix Potter um, story. She was the sweetest woman who loved teaching her kids. And she had written a play about being a kindergarten teacher. And it was so interesting for me to leave this like murderous, very punk pop project called Dink. And then work on this very innocent kindergarten teacher's story. And I, I, I loved working with her because she was so open and she enveloped such goodness. Like, and, and I thought this must've been what it would be like to meet Beatrix Potter. Mm-hmm. But because I had a, I was, that's mom's Mabley. Oh my God. Jackie. Jackie. Oh, she's so dykey. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, but because um, people were very frightened by the aggression of this play, I had said to this kindergarten teacher, I'll help you. I will dramaturge your play. I'll do drafts with you. And then she said, please, can you direct it? And I said, I'll cast it. I'll direct it. I'll produce it with you. I said, on the condition you pay the actors this much. Da, 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 da. So they were really wonderful. But I said, because I've done this very provocative play eight months ago, the critics might make you as the writer suffer for associating with me. So I used a pseudonym. So sometimes I will, if I, I will do very innocent children, childlike work, but I will use a pseudonym um, to protect the other artists because um, my name is is synonymous with some critics getting pretty angry at me. So I always like to protect those who I'm associating with, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh-huh. were you pleased with that particular production with the, the kindergarten? Oh, just, it was so full of love. And what happened was, rather than marketing it to the theatre-going audience, we marketed it to all the kindergarten teachers in the city. So it, 
it was probably one of the most joyful experiences I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the type of theater I would create, but I did facilitate it and mm -hmm. got it, you know, got it um, down to, you know, what it was supposed to do and, uh, and made the writer happy because when I work for writers as a dramaturge, you know, you're a parental figure and, you know, you want to be the good parent to get them to keep writing and, and keep going deeper and exploring. So it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a very happy job for me. Yes. And at the moment I'm working with a, a gay Sikh playwright, which those two things you don't hear together, like the Sikh religion with a gay man. Um, that's a very interesting project that happens post 9-11 in Toronto so I'm looking, that's my, the project I'm working on now as lot, as well as, you know, a lot of the fifth column stuff with GB and, um, and I write, um, I write prose as well. Yes. Do you, are you going to sort of at some stage kind of document your own life as well and, and sort of, yeah. and somehow, you know, write your story? Because obviously it's such a fascinating kind of period on you know, over the last 50, 60 years, isn't it? So I just wondered if you yeah. if you felt, especially a lot of people did, you know, during the last five, six years, thinking about their own life and and what they've got and what they've done and the changes that have happened, uh, thinking about, um, yes, just basically writing your book. That would be, you know, I've, th I've thought about that, but I always think if you're doing a product or a book, how does it, how does it serve society? So um you know the theme for us because we didn't uh jump on the fame bus as a band we're more infamous uh in in an underground way what is the message like i'd have to think about what's a useful message for a reader mm. or for someone who's the end user receiving the information so until i figured that out i don't see it being done it would have to make sense in that regard. Do you get what I mean? Yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's yeah. interesting. So when lockdown came, did you were you already working on certain projects, or did that stop your what you mm. what you had been planning, and then you had to sort of rethink the decade? Uh, when lockdown happened, I was so happy because I'm an agoraphobic. So um, I thought, oh, now I have an excuse not to go out. <laughs> so for, for example i you know i i was happy i was happy 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 we were still working on um the to serve with hate redux um and our producer had left toronto and moved to farm country so that was a challenge and then um you know so we had to i think we adapted okay we just you know it was a very it was like living in wartime you just kind of what like the news becomes the art like consciousness like you know people having different stories around vaccines or masks are 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 you know i i think what was so exciting at that time was to um observe the hystericity of the conspiracy theorists um around you know being anti-vax and anti-mask and all that and anti-health and uh so I, I think real life at that time was more hysterical and more cartoon than art. If you, you see what I mean? 
art could not compete with the insane reality during COVID. Yes, this is very true. This is so yeah. true. And also, it was quite interesting, that world of getting one's head around the kind of world of conspiracy theories, theorists, because in a way, <laughs> you have to sort of work out, you know, sometimes you have to sort of, you know, I do anyway, sort of tiptoe a bit, you know, because some people, you know, it was anti-vax, anti-mask, you know, the, the earth is flat, um, the moon yeah. is fake, you know, there was the, and that all started to sort of come out more and more. And it was like, oh, that's yeah. interesting. And just kind of being suspicious of everything. But then flipping that to the world that, well, if you can't see this, you must be stupid. It's like, wow, you know, my brain can somehow always go to those levels because it's like but then those people felt better about themselves because they could right. see yeah. they could see the the pizza basement and this conspiracy thing with bill gates oh god yeah so the whole yeah. thing became like it, mm -hmm. everything started getting poured into this kind of world and the people kind of following it as well and if you're on the so they thought they they had the, you know they could see what was going on and we were all stupid or i was and then I was there going, blimey, I can't believe you've kind of going for the whole, you bought the whole ticket. So it was kind of the world had gone a bit peculiar. And I guess the, the dust has slightly settled, but it is still, there's still things out there which are a bit peculiar. And yes, we can just, um, it's hard to know. Well, I mean, the, ri the rise in anti-Semitism is outrageous and it's unacceptable. Um, and it's a deterrent to democracy. Uh, right now, it's yeah, it's it, that has settled down. But now we're dealing with something much more profound and convoluted, and um, and violent. You know, um, where where you know it, 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 information. Huh, you know, uh, we owe it to ourselves to question everything and to kind of follow the money. You know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I am very glad I didn't have children. Let's just say, <laughs> yes, yeah. just stick to cats. But um, that's it. That's did it. You, yeah. Did you? Um, because you mentioned about, you know, I'm not sure if you did mention it, but it, it reminded me of Earth Magic. You were talking about, um, I think water, fire, wind, earth. Did I mention that? In witches and stuff like that. Did you also, as a person, develop interest in sort of the world of ley lines and sort of going into those kind of other realms of, I suppose, earth magic at times, which was quite a curious thing that I remember in the 90s was particularly kind of um, popular. And I remember becoming quite sort of intrigued and in, interested in at the same time, not feeling any great source of energy from these places, but often feeling like I'd like to. So um, did you, have you also had a little bit of a spiritual kind of path yourself? Well, that, I remember that from the 70s and those great programs with Leonard Nimoy hosting them called In Search Of. I don't know yes. if you got those in the UK. I think you had Arthur C. Clarke doing a show in the UK in the in 1980, which was yes. very similar to that. Um, and so that was, yeah, I loved those shows. Yeah. I have to say, In Search Of, and yeah. there was another one that Edward Mulher uh, was the host of, and I can't remember the title of that, but right. all of those shows. 
searching for the Yeti, searching for yeah. the abominable snowman, searching for the uh, Bigfoot. Um, yeah, those shows are fabulous. They are. Yeah. And you know what's great about those shows and that culture is it takes us away from the obnoxiousness of the Abrahamic religions. When the other makes itself known in culture around, you know, the mysterious element, the in search of, et cetera, UFOs. If we can get back to that, we'll... What's that, the Mermuda Triangle? Remember how popular that was? Yes, absolutely. Yes. You know, the thing is, is that why are we missing that mystery and that suspense now? Because the Abrahamic religions have taken over the airspace. And the Abrahamic religions is what leads to war. All of them. Yes. Yeah. The Yeti isn't causing any war. The Yeti's not causing war. The UFOs aren't causing war. Oh, go Pogo doesn't cause war. <laughs> That's the right. This monster doesn't co- cause yeah. war. We need these mythical creatures back. Yes. This is- right. They would. They. They would. They would transpire um, a, a landscape of mystery as opposed to, you know, land rights, indigenous, this or that, who owns this land, who, you know, like, I, I think we need to be looking upwards, not not at the terra firma. Mm. The terra firma, the terra firma has failed us. Um, yes. and, and, and those who are the, uh, the mar- mar- those marshalling, the politicians don't know what to do with the land. They don't know how to counsel us. Um, we're, uh, we're in the end of days. Of course we are. But, um, so yeah, the elements are very important. I, I believe if you're pissed off at someone, y- you should urinate on their property. Don't take <laughs> their property, just urinate on it. That to me is magic. Animals tell us what to do. Animals under animals live magic. Yes, well, absolutely. Our cat certainly does. He, yes, yeah, good. He, lo- he loves to urinate. What's your cat's name? Well, there's Oscar, and the other one, he's Freddy, but he sadly passed away quite recently, so it's all a bit sort of sad. But um, yes, Oscar and Freddy, they were a great duo. So there you go. Do you have cats? I did have a, uh, two cats, Andorra and Beach Boy, um, but that uh, I've not had cats in a while. But I'm I'm missing a cat, and all of a sudden it shows up a picture of Joni Mitchell and a kitten. We love, yeah, I love cats definitely. Oh, I saw that picture today as well. The one, yeah, uh, yes, I know. I thought that's not nice, great. But, yeah. Yes. So as yeah. this, as we're at the the winter solstice, have you or have you been sort of preparing or doing anything specific for this kind of momentous occasion um you gb have you winter solstice well we're i'm here with gb that's always a treat um i drove across town to be with her and do things and talk to you so that's a celebration in itself the fact that you know we can breathe we can walk uh we've got a lot more than other people, I guess. That's yes. gratitude. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So on the on your sort of 
you know, with with doing your remixing of the, the some of the early albums, have you got any dates that you've got in your mind of when you'll be bringing some of the material out from the band? Yeah, next year. Next, next year. year. Yeah. 2024. Yeah. This is it. This is it. And yeah. is it going to be a box set or are you going to have certain releases that are going to be sort of um, available during certain certain well, we're months? Well, we're only doing a thousand vinyl that will be stamped and signed of To Sir With Hate of the remaster and the remix. So, um, and then we'll have 200 CDs. So, um, I guess there'll be, um, I guess there'll be that collector's items. And hopefully if we sell out, we'll be able to redo them. Yes. But who knows, who knows what will happen? And it's, what about, and what about the, your other albums and, and work? Cause it's quite hard to get hold of. Are you going to try and, mm-hmm. um, bring those out as well as more kind of yes. easily available. Absolutely. We are because, uh, but we, we just, we don't want to work with a label because they never pay us. So we'd much rather invest, make the money and then reinvest it. And yes. just where like labels, we don't, we don't need a label. Yep. Yes. Well, look, this is this is going to be fantastic. I mean, just last question for both of you. If you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self starting out in this mm. interesting past, is there anything in particular that you might have said, even if that person ignored you? Can you think of something? Your 16-year-old self? Um, no, because my 16-year-old self wouldn't have listened to anyone. I know that's always. <laughs> well, when yeah. I, my 16 year old self would have been, um, uh, uh, join a military band, join the military and, and, and play a wind instrument. That mm-hmm. That's what I would have. Yeah. You and, said that's it. But, yeah. And I would have still joined Fifth Column, but I would have come with more ammunition. Ha, 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 so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's all good. It's all Well, look, yeah. thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. And um, it got together. Thank really you amazing. very much for taking an interest. Yes. And, well, uh, I'm always very curious. And um, yes, I'll be very excited to um, see and hear your, um, yes, releases for next year. It'll be good. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for your time. Yes. Well, GB, thank you. Hope you'll keep on yeah. painting and drawing. And um, and thank you, Caroline, as well. That's been amazing. And Our pleasure. Yes, merry, merry midwinter 2023. I know. You got it. It's great to make your acquaintance and have your friendship. And uh, I believe you're my friend, but GB's just requested. Oh, you. there you go. And so we can see each other and be pals online. Lovely. Well, look, take care of yourselves and um, yes, you. enjoy enjoy the winter period. Okay, take care. You got it. All See right. Bye bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You guessed it. Anyway, massive thank you to both Caroline and GB from the fifth column. And um, as you know, 
much, much more. Hopefully they'll be bringing out more of their material later on this year, decade. Who knows? Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.